This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Let me introduce today's speaker, Craig Keating. He has a PhD in 20th century European history from McMaster, and he's a member of the Department of History at Langara, and he's also taught at UBC and Simon Fraser. And today he's going to talk to us about postmodernism, one of the most requested topics. for that, Ian. I don't know if folks can hear me. There we are. I think I can, people can hear me now. Um, uh, I just want to begin by saying thanks very much, everybody, for coming out uh, this morning and for Ian for extending the invitation and organizing the meeting today, although I guess it's a regular meeting. Um, I was asking earlier whether or not um, the humanists met on purpose on a Sunday morning, um, and uh, I was informed, no, that it works for the schedule, we get good room rates, and I love it when you know, economy and convenience converge with anti-clerical sentiments. So this is all fantastic. Um, the, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, uh, I gotta work on that cheer there, buddy. <laughs> the, um, so anyway, um, I have to say, uh, so, uh, as Ian said, I've, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, I'm here to talk a little bit about postmodernism, um, and I have to say, uh, this is the first time in quite a many years that I've had the opportunity to do this, uh, but I have to say about 20 years ago, it was a real cottage industry for me. Uh, in the middle of the 1980s, um, I, as Ian mentioned, I began my PhD at McMaster University in 20th century European history, and I ended up moving into 20th century European intellectual history, or the history of ideas, the history of intellectuals themselves, and the history of philosophy. Um, and the prof I had at the time, who was supervising my intellectual history field, stopped everything with existentialism. So I got to read Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. Um, but being a, you know, a wet-behind-the-ears rube from the country who nonetheless got a decent scholarship at McMaster, I shamelessly said, well, what's next? What happened after existentialism? And in the friend's case, what happened after existentialism was structuralism, post-structuralism, and ultimately postmodernism. And so uh, by the middle of the 1980s, I found myself immer- immersed in something, uh, writing in postmodernism, generally speaking, and writing a thesis uh, about the work of the guy in the middle here, the French postmodernist historian and philosopher Michel Foucault. Um, it was a career-limiting move, as it turned out, um, the, uh, because in the middle of the 1980s, uh, postmodernism was a real challenge. It was new, it was French, and it offered really fundamental challenges to the way the academy had been organized and the way in which many disciplines in the social sciences and the humanities uh, uh, approached uh, uh, history. Well, they're, they're various subjects. There's new methodologies, new perspectives, new concepts about how we ought to do things. Um, and I remember uh, back in the 1980s, we had a guest speaker come in from um, the, the UK to talk about the working class and uh, what they called music hall theater at the time and the relationships between the performers in music hall theater and the working class people. And he said at, the, at, at, at one point, well, by nature, of course, people wanted to identify and be part of the group. And I raised my hand again wet behind the ears, country rube that I was, and I said, well, what's your version of human nature? And the chair of the department took his beady eyes and looked at me and spat out, 
postmodernist. Um, so these were the kinds of things. These were very much the cultural wars of the time. Um, so, but as I say, it was um, a bit of a cottage industry. By the end of the 1990s, that had sort of really dried up. Like many cottage industrialists, I found myself driven out by um, uh, the changing times. Um, and if that was so, it was for a couple of reasons. One, it was by the end of the 1990s, these major figures of French postmodernism were all dead or soon to be dead. Michel Foucault in the middle, uh, Gilles Deleuze here at the bottom right, uh, Louis Althusser at the bottom left, Jacques Lacan at the top left, and Jacques Derrida. By the end of the 1990s, they were mainly dead. Also, by the late 1990s and the early 2000s, the real culture wars about postmodernism and the academy uh, in North America had largely been resolved, um, either because they were somewhat passe or because the academy had, in fact, integrated some in varying measures, depending upon the discipline, some of the perspectives, some of the concepts of postmodernism. And so for a while, long while, I, my cottage industry dried up. And these kinds of talks about postmodernism were a thing of the past for me. And so it was a bit of a surprise when I got uh, Ian's email to say, everybody wants to find out about postmodernism. Um, and they want to find out about postmodernism because of this guy, a guy named Jordan Peterson, who's a, a Canadian-born psychology professor at U of T, um, who um, has been writing a lot about postmodernism, uh, or saying a lot of things about postmodernism, let me put it that way. Um, and I have to confess, it's not like I hadn't not heard of Jordan Peterson, but I really hadn't bothered to actually engage with the guy because he seemed a bit of a, a passing fad. But when I did get into uh, a bit of reading about Jordan Peterson, subsequent to Ian's uh, uh, email request that I come here today, um, uh, I found out why people might want to know a little bit about postmodernism. Because the things he said about them were pretty lurid, I would have to say. Um, Postmodernism, Jordan Peterson argues, is nothing but repurposed communism and Marxism of the totalitarian model, which is to say of the model that led to the deaths of more than 100 million people in the 20th century, and as Jordan Peterson would say, far more than Nazism and fascism, and I don't even think we should go down the road of comparing who's the better totalitarian. Um, the uh, uh, by the end of the 1960s, Peterson further argued that these Marxists had really could no longer be public Marxists. As he writes, by the late 1960s in France, quote, you could not be a Marxist and claim that you were also a human being. Um, so he says the Marxists simply got a new skin, and that new skin was um, uh, postmodernism. But he says ultimately this postmodernism is the old habits of Marxism the desire to stress opposition and division in society, but to find a new set of groups, new elites, new oppressed, to continue the habitual narrative of Marxism under a new name. And further, he argues, that this new name of postmodernism, this new game of postmodernism, is rather to stress identity politics. The sense that people who are not 
proletarians or bourgeois, but nonetheless are divided between elites who may be white uh, or who may be middle class, but also against people who are non-white, subaltern people. This is the new kind of identity politics that divides women from men, white from non-white, um, traditional from non-traditional, straight versus uh, uh, alternative sexualized people. These are the kinds of things that goes on. And Peterson goes on to argue um, that this kind of identity politics informed by postmodernism uh, now controls the, quote, low to mid-level bureaucracies of many governments. And further, he says, and I've got a little Jordan Peterson here quoted, um, that in fact it dominates all of the humanities, which, as he says, as far as I can tell, are now dead, and a huge proportion of the social sciences. We're still, he argues, the rise of postmodern political correctness is on the one hand all about power. Not written here, but elsewhere, he writes, all the postmodernists are motivated to do is to accrue all the power to themselves because, after all, who else is there? Still more, he says, they are all, quote, hell-bent on demolishing the fundamental substructure of Western civilization. But that's it. Um, the... Uh, the <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to see he's measured in his attack. But um, this is, the, um, this is um, the argument that Jordan Peterson puts out there. And for those of you who want to inform yourselves about postmodernism through Jordan Peterson's lens, I want to recount a tale of when I was a young undergraduate and I read the famous but famously mistaken book by the English historian A.J.P. Taylor called The Origins of the Second World War, a book in which A.J.P. Taylor said the only thing that was wrong with Hitler and the Nazis was that they were unre unredeemed German nationalists. All that other stuff known as the Holocaust was a mere piffle, apparently. But I ran up to my prof, uh, who was from Harvard, and I said, oh, this summer I read A.J.P. Taylor's origins of the Second World War. And he said to me with his great Harvard accent, well, Craig, you'll, you'll have a lot to unlearn then, won't you? Um, and, uh, and so again, in, in terms of Peterson and postmodernism, if you want to understand postmodernism through Peterson, well, you've got to un a lot to unlearn then, don't you? Um, so um, in today's lecture then, I, I want to sort of create a different frame than Peterson's for trying to understand um, uh, postmodernism. In particular, I want to argue that Peterson's take is fundamentally wrong-headed. In particular, it is wrong-headed in, in relation to its most fundamental criticism of postmodernism, which is to say that postmodernism aims at undermining the fundamental substructure of Western civilization, that postmodernism is merely repurposed Marxism, that its aim is the acquisition rather than the analysis of power and that its position in the academy today is merely about a crude political correctness and identity politics. In today's lecture, I want to give you what I hope would be a better but fairly general understanding of postmodernism. And I will do so as an historian within the context of history. Uh, but I want to give you a better understanding of postmodernism as something that certainly did challenge important truisms that slumbered deep within the project of modernity with this idea of a modern Western rational civilization. It absolutely did challenge some of those important ideas that slumbered silently in many respects within the Western tradition. And it challenged them specifically by pointing out a relationship between knowledge and power 
that was the inverse of the relationship between knowledge and power that the project of Western civilization, Western modernity, had initially proposed. But if it did challenge that, it did so in good faith as regards the broader critical enterprise of Western modernity. And thus, postmodernism is best understood as a difficult, challenging, but nonetheless integral part of Western civilization and the Western project of modernity. Um, and to the extent that postmodernism is nonetheless within that broader arc of modernism, the Western civilization, I think it helps us understand why none of the people I showed on the screen before, who we describe as postmodernists, ever described themselves with that label. They all rejected that label. So, in what follows then, oops, that's going a bit deep. Um, I just want to give a little bit of an understanding of postmodernism within this broader historical frame. I guess the first question that we have to, to uh, encounter is what gives postmodernism its postness? Postmodernism suggests that it's after modernism, and I've used the term modernity. Um, and modernity is the more scholarly term we use. And modernity tends to refer to a kind of liberal, which is an individualist, rationalist order. The liberal rational synthesis intellectual historians of modern Europe talk about. The ways in which there was a particular frame by which we thought we could understand, we as individuals could understand the world in specific ways, and that individual human understanding of the world had distinct political consequences in terms of relationships of power and the creation of the conditions of freedom. So this was modernity. Um, and so where does, what is modernity? And, I, and through this, I want to try to begin to understand where does postmodernism fit in all of this. Um, and again, modernity, which is crucial to the idea of Western civilization, again, to go back to Jordan Peterson, I'm going to have to wash my hands of that eventually, but anyway, to go back to Jordan Peterson, he talks about postmodernism attack on Western civilization. If we can agree in the room that there is something out there known as Western civilization, its conceptualization as a distinct tradition that is Western really begins in the modern era. And so modernity and Western civilization, ideas of Western civilization, all begin around the same time. And it composes a number of different innovations. One is the cultural rehabilitation of the individual that begins in the Renaissance. Certainly up until the beginning of the Renaissance, one could argue that European culture, at the very least, if I want to step back from the term Western civilization, had a fundamentally negative perception of the individual, informed importantly by biblical tradition and the notions of original sin. The individual was necessarily, especially because the individual was in the world, was necessarily corrupt and not a focal point of anything in particular. But beginning in the Renaissance with Pico della Mirandola's oration on the dignity of man, there's Pico up there in the left-hand corner, um, we see the beginning of this cultural rehabilitation of the individual. To man, Pico wrote, it is granted to have whatever he chooses and to be whatever he will. He was God's special creation amongst all the other things that God had done. So there's still God there, but nonetheless, man, air quotes there, um, humans, the, I think in the 1300s he really meant man, but um, I think that we can say humans. Humans are special. They can be whatever they want to be and they can transform the world, they can possess it um, in any way they choose. So there is this beginning of this new importance of individuality. And 
this is the quickest history of Western civilization you're going to get. Um, a couple of centuries later, by the time you get to Martin Luther, we see that this cultural rehabilitation of the individual um, becomes importantly ensconced with the notion that humans are knowing individuals. The human capacity to know, to understand, to apprehend truth in a relatively direct and easy way about the world using what is God-given in terms of our faculties becomes an important aspect of that um, rehabilitation of humans. Um, and so, in the case of Luther, there is the notion that human understanding is so perfect and so able that you can get rid of priests and you need not have the intercession of any other human being between yourself and your relationship with God. This is a fantastic leap forward in perceptions of what humans can do with their understanding mind. Um, and it's part of the moral regeneration of humans as well. No longer are we evil. We are able to read God's word in our own vernacular, understand it, and have a personal relationship with God, and to know God. This is a very important leap forward. Speaking of great leap forward, um, a couple of centuries after that, thereabouts, in 1689, a fellow named Isaac Newton wrote a book called the Principia Mathematica, many books called Principia Mathematica in the European tradition. But his Principia Mathematica was the summary of all the observations of people like Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo about the movement of heavenly bodies. And using mere power of human reason, he deduced that you could understand the laws of planetary motion by observing reality. Wow, that's quite a trick. Humans could simply observe and understand the way the world works. And not only that, they could solve something that at least from the time of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates was a profound problem, how to understand planetary motion as a regular system. He does this. And Newton is celebrated for this accomplishment. Uh, Alexander Pope writes this poem about Newton. God, uh, uh, nature and nature's law lay hid in darkest night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. Um, this, uh, you know, you get this kind of sense. But the, the important part about Newton was what he said about human capacity to understand and dominate nature. So this notion of individuality and the knowing being becomes tremendously important. And this understanding of individuality and the knowing being reaches its high point in the broader cultural pro process known as the Enlightenment, one of the key figures of which in its last days is the Prussian philosopher Immanuel Kant, who in 1784 writes a famous pamphlet, Was ist Aufklärung? I speak German just because it's fun. Uh, what is enlightenment? And what was enlightenment? Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's understanding without guidance from another. This immaturity is self-imposed when its cause lies not in a lack of understanding, but in a lack of resolve and courage to use it without the guidance from another. Sapere aude, dare to know. Have the courage to use your own understanding. That is the motto of the Enlightenment. And so it is this celebration of the natural capacity of humans to look at nature and understand it without the guidance of another. It becomes a kind of basic human faculty uh, in the conceptualization of individuals in the Enlightenment. And this becomes importantly linked to one other question, that of power, and, and the inverse of power, liberty. 
Thus, once nature has removed the hard shell from this kernel for which she has fondly cared, namely the inclination to and a vocation for free thinking, the kernel gradually reacts on a people's mentality where they become increasingly able to act freely. I'm going to stop it right there. But here's an amazing relation. If you can think freely, if you can use your own reason without the guidance of another, you can act freely. It is an overt statement that this human capacity to understand the world leads to political freedom as well. And there's a fundamental relationship here which becomes absolutely crucial to, quote-unquote, the Western tradition and to modernity as a project, which is the important relationship between knowledge and freedom. Knowledge sets you free. This becomes one of the important elements of the modern project. Um, it allows governments to treat humans as real individuals, not mere machines, and restores to them thereby their dignity. There's this important sense in which knowledge, the free understanding of knowledge, just simply by being a human and observing the world, leads to political freedom. It is the engine of political freedom. Um, and um, I would say one other thing about this, that certainly through the 19th century, um, or the late 18th century, early and into the 19th century, when there's a number of different revolutions that are going on in Europe and North America, economic revolutions of industrialization, political revolutions in France and America and other places, social revolutions, cultural revolutions in taste in terms of the broadening of, uh, of the public, all of these revolutions seem to validate this project of modernity. Life, life seemed to be getting better. Okay, we may have to exclude slavery, imperialism, uh, and um, the ravages of industrialization, but except, I feel like Monty Python, what's the Romans ever given us then? Um, the, uh, but if you excuse those sorts of things, there is a broad sort of sense that life is getting better. And this notion also contributes importantly to the idea of what, uh, modernity and Western civilization. Through the 19th century, the application of human understanding to complex problems were leading to technological innovations that manifestly seemed to be improving the condition of life for millions of Europeans at the very least. And certainly people began to think that this application of human reason to these problems was the engine of progress, which to say that if you continue to understand things and apply knowledge, that basic human faculty, life would improve, and that there was an arc of history ever onward, ever upward towards that heavenly city. This was the project of modernity. Individuality, reason, leading to freedom, leading to improvement, leading to the idea of a broader Western civilization. And I'm going to talk about some of the doubters in just a moment. But it'd be fair to say, certainly up until 1914, and what happens in that year to make people rethink? Um, anyway, um, the, uh, certainly up until 1914, the idea of progress is a powerful concept um, that grounds modernity and the idea of, as, 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 as Jordan Peterson would say, a Western civilization. But I would say that throughout the 19th century, there are a lot of doubts that immediately begin to emerge about this conceptualization. Importantly, the conceptualization of the relationship between individuality and um, understanding and knowledge, um, which is to say. Um, and a lot of that uh, doubt was 
raised, these are the, some of the leading figures, the leading doubters of the 19th century, what one historian has called the masters of suspicion. Um, there's uh, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche up in the left hand, then Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, all of whom in their own ways begin to raise a certain set of questions that erode the confidence in this easy notion that humans merely have to open their eyes and they can understand the world. And all they have to do is speak and share that knowledge of the world. Um, what were the suspicions? Certainly, along with the romantics, generally speaking, in the 1830s and the 1840s, people like Nietzsche, Freud, and Darwin came up with a conception that maybe humans, in fact, had this aspect of their being that was not, in fact, rational. The romantics, as much as anything, want to stress the fact that humans are not really rational beings. We're sentient beings as well. The important thing is that we feel as much as we think which has priority. Um, Nietzsche, later in the 19th century, argued that at the base of human being was not reason. Reason was oppression. What you needed to let go of was this will to power, this ruthless element of human wanting, a wild, driven force. Uh, Freud puts a name on that force, sexual drives, um, in his conceptualization of the human psyche, uh, where the human ego is this byproduct of a conflictual relationship between the superego, these internalized rules, and the sexual drives from below, the id. Um, but the id, this sexual drive or libido, um, suggests that there's other things in human being. And of course, Darwin suggests, listen, you're, you're all biology anyway, so forget about it. Um, so there is this notion of what are the other elements of human being. But also, and arguably more importantly, and this is pointing really in the direction of postmodernism and, and why we see, I see anyway, postmodernism as not, as Peterson would, antithetical to the project of modernity, but a necessary extension of this. One of the other challenges that these masters of suspicion begin to raise is that simple relationship that modernists had argued existed between human relation, human reason, and the world. All you needed to do was open your eyes, look, use your God-given reason, and nature which was out there could be known to you in a fairly easy way. Um, that nothing stood between human reason, human perception, and the world. Um, that history and culture did not interfere through language in the human understanding of the world. Marx is one of the first to argue this. Famously, and I can't remember in which of his many, many writings he says this, he writes at one point, is it any wonder that the ruling ideas are the ideas of the ruling class? And he imputes to this this notion of false consciousness. Despite the fact that, as Kant said, all you had to do was think for yourself, there's all sorts of people who are not, with the necessary guidance of another, inculcating these views of the world that are antithetical to their own interests, and it seems like a false consciousness. Is it any wonder that the ruling idea is the idea is the ruling class? Um, so he talks about false consciousness. Freud, as well, importantly, talked about the way in which human beings internalized, silently, unbeknownst to themselves, a certain set of presuppositions about the way the world worked that deeply influenced their being. I'm not sure how many Freudians we have in the room, but we do have a projector. Um, that, <laughs> Aha, thank you, thank you. I'm here all week. Um, the, uh, um, the do not repress your laughter. Um, the, um, it, it's, uh, but Freud uh, posits this notion of the human ego, the I am, 
as, as I say, this dynamic relationship between basic, natural, human sexual drives and those internalized rules in the first instance for the son's love for his mother, the father's no. Um, that's the first rule you internalize, and he calls that the superego. But if you understand the superego in Freud, it is all those rules that we internalize from the outside. And we do it often at such a young age, and in ways that are unknown to us, that we simply internalize it silently. And so this is a very important point in terms of that simple relationship between the human reason and the world that we need to understand. This notion that you can't just simply perceive the world because you've got all these habits that you internalize, you know? That say please and thank you, use manners, don't pick your nose except while driving, these, these sorts of things. Um, <laughs> these are the things, you know, I, I think uh, Freud was a little bit more eloquent than that, but nonetheless, these are the, the superego, these things that you internalize. And he's not up there, but um, while Freud was still alive, a Swiss linguistic theorist, Fernand de Saussure, um, would argue that he makes some important arguments about language. For instance, great thing, by the time my kids were five, both of them, they could combine and recombine about several thousand different linguistic symbols in a relatively flawless way such that they could easily be understood. And they never once had a formal lesson in the rules of language. It's an important metaphor. You can internal, internalize silently and unbeknownst unbeknownst to yourself, uh, you can silently internalize a complex set of rules that allow you to reproduce linguistic symbols in an infinite set, thousands of linguistic symbols in an infinite set relatively flawlessly. And it becomes an important further lesson about what Freud was talking about, which is to say there is no simple passage between the world and human perception. And it'd be fair to say that through much of the 20th century, those doubts of these masters of suspicion begin to drive on much of European, and indeed, in my case, French philosophy. Uh, people like Edmund Husserl over here, who was the father of phenomenology in uh, philosophy, argue that the ob object of philosophy was to be able to bracket out, to reduce all those theories, as he called them, the knowledge that he said existed in everyday life, and that was a barrier, a set of pre-grown assumptions between yourself and the world. But that was not rigorous scientific inquiry. You need to reduce all these things, which is a profound admission that, in fact, those things actually existed. And that the object of philosophy, if you really wanted to live up to the promise of modernity, which is to clearly understand the world, you had to reduce this. You had to bracket it off. You had to get rid of all these other influences. And Jean-Paul Sartre, as well, engages in this uh, in his most famous work, Being and Nothingness, which he publishes in 1937. He says that so bad is the influence of all these externalities to a pure understanding of the world that really we get down to a battle of the gazes. There is two kinds of being, being for yourself in which you impose through your gaze an order on the world or being in itself in which you become merely an object in somebody else's gaze. Um, it appeared to be a bit of a dead-end road, and thankfully in 1945 he basically gives up and says existentialism and humanism, we can understand the world fine. Anyway, um, and that's all you need about, to know about Sartre. He waves the white flag in 1945. So, 
this was where the project of modernism had got to on the verge of the beginning of postmodernism. Everybody had been talking about, to the extent I have been, who's involved in the postmodernist tradition were students in the French university system in the late 1940s when Jean-Paul Sartre basically gives it all up and says, look, we just can't resolve this problem of the fact that there are these externalities. That if we wanted, and this was the key point for Sartre, if you wanted to preserve the notion that you could find a space where the world as it is, is open to human perception and we can understand it totally and clearly, then you had to simply, you had to find that way, and Sartre really only gets that way by giving up. The pro he avoids the problems. Postmodernism, if one wants to give an understanding of where it really begins, postmodernism, and the term was first used in 1979, by the way, so these people I'm about to talk about are not declaring themselves as university students in the late 1940s to be postmodernists, but they are, in fact, beginning to take up this problem of, once again, of how to resolve the fact that there is um, all these other influences that form a kind of grill through which sense data is interpreted. And what becomes the essential element of postmodernism is the notion that you can't escape this. And this is really what makes postmodernism postmodernism. They argue, in fact, that there is no outside space. There is no ground from which one can begin to perceive the world in such an accurate way that all those external influences are not functional. They argue that history and culture and sociology through language become the necessary way in which reality is shaped for us. And in fact, that you can never get to a spot where that doesn't happen. Everything is a construct a social construct, a cultural construct, all the way down. So if you want to get to one of these challenging corrosive things that people like Jordan Peterson react against, it's this notion that everything is culturally constructed. Everything is historically constructed. That we can never escape history and culture as given to us through language. It's all there uh, all the time. Um, and this drives at another important um, aspect of postmodernism, which is the crucial theory of truth that postmodernism posits because of this. And let me just pause to take a little bit of a brief history of truth um, the, uh, in the sense that I don't mean to tell you everything that was true historically, but it's simply to say that truth has not always been arrived at at every time and every place, even within the Western tradition in the same way. Certainly the Greeks, Aristotle, would have argued, in fact, that nature exists and it finds its reflection in our mind. And there's a, some kind of correspondence there. Um, Christians, any Christians in the room this morning? Um, um, the, uh, would have argued, in, certainly in the high point of Christianity, that truth was never in this world. It was an ex exegetical reading of the Bible. That's how truth is produced, correspondence to the revealed word. And I raise these two points simply to say that truth and the theories of truth, how we think truth is produced, and the institutions around which we accept statements as true have manifestly changed over time. And even in the modern era, they do the same thing. The modern era wants to argue that there's a correspondence theory of truth. 
that my statements are made true because they correspond with a reality that is accessible to us all. This is the modern correspondence theory of truth. And that thing for which even the doubters in the 19th century, they wanted to get to. They wanted to get to that point where you could see the world truly as it is and represent it. And statements would be made true because they corresponded with reality, that there was some kind of commensurability between my statements and the world as it is. But for the postmodernists, and this is the other crucial aspect of it, postmodernists come to argue a different, they have a different theory of truth, which is what we might call postmodern truth, that statements are made, not made true by their correspondence with reality, but there are certain conditions in which statements are allowed to pass, excuse me, there are certain conditions in which statements are allowed to pass for true. And there's, in fact, no important difference, postmodernists would argue, between truth and the conditions which allow statements to pass for true. Um, and this is the logical consequence of this, the dead end that modernity got into with people like Husserl and Sartre. They got to a dead end. And as I say, and I sort of joke and poke fun at my good friend John Paul, uh, but nonetheless, he really does give up the ghost. He doesn't ever solve the problem, crack the riddle, and simply say, well, we'll just have to pretend that this problem doesn't exist and we can go about our business otherwise. This is the sad endpoint of existentialism after its first great days. As Gilles Deleuze, who was a student in 1945, says, after hearing Jean Balsart give this lecture, existentialism is a humanism, he said, after all that great effort, he drags out that old duffer humanism. Um, the, uh, so this was, the existentialists give up, Postmodernism stakes its ground on the fact you can't give up. Everything is social conditioning all the way down, or cultural conditioning all the way down. And there is no truth, per se, or at least there's no important difference between truth and, and the conditions in which things are allowed to pass for true. And so this becomes also one of the important other aspects of postmodernism, the analysis of the conditions in which things are allowed to pass for true. And the best example of it, and I say this not simply because I did my PhD for eight years on this guy, um, is in the work of Michel Foucault, um, who was an historian, born in France in 1926. He attends the elite uh, school, the École Normale Supérieure, um, studies uh, uh, abroad in Sweden and uh, other parts in Europe, returns in 1961 in, to France to take up a variety of academic positions by 1970, becomes a member of the Collège de France, which is the best gig in the world. Um, there's 40 members of the Collège de France, and for a high price, you're paid to give 12 lectures a year and otherwise study. Man, how do you get work like that? Um, uh, but Foucault begins to make this argument, uh, the, the, sort of to take off on this tangent around um, cultural and social conditions in which statements are allowed to pass for true. Um, and he begins to do that through a study of um, mental illness, known as Madness and Civilization, in his English translation. Does the same thing in the rise of clinical knowledge, the birth of the clinic. Uh, studies the prisons uh, in a book called Discipline and Punish. Uh, talks about human sexuality and a history of sexuality. All of these um, studies which seek to examine the conditions in which, which govern the creation of true statements. And some of those conditions are relatively obvious, although by the same time, because when you hear them, you'll think they're relatively obvious. But at the time, it's quite shocking when he explains them in his first lecture at the Collège de France in 1970. Um, 
Absolutely. There is a process for advancement in tenure systems. There is a peer-reviewed process. There are certain disciplinary boundaries between institutions in which you can say some things and use some methods and not say some other things. There's a publishing industry in which some things are accepted and other things are not accepted. And so part of the argument here is that just be obvious that about the conditions are certain obvious institutional conditions in which statements are made, true statements are allowed to be produced and are verified as true because they are stated by certain figures, stated in certain places, some open conditions. So there's a political power relationship here, absolutely, he's talking about as well. But beyond that, he argues that even the author is immaterial here. In any given discipline, the author cannot say just whatever they want. They are not constitutive of very much of anything. They work within what he calls a broad archive of concepts of methodologies that define a variety of disciplines. And in fact, if you seek to go out that, outside that, you're outside those other institutional bounds, and what you have to say is in fact not truth. It loses its truth-making conditions and powers, not because of any failing in correspondence, but for other institutional reasons. But the broader point here is this confluence of institutional structures of power and what is able to be said, this archaeology, um, creates something he calls discourse, the interaction of true statements, and I use the air quotes for true statements, and institutions. Because, he argues, one of the important things here is that discourse produces objects of knowledge and the condition in which statements can come to be true. Um, that it's only within discourse that objects are created. And a great example is, in fact, in some of the things he talks about here. The quick passage from the middle of the 1700s to the early 1900s between the random filling of what were essentially prisons of people who were poor, destitute, what we would call insane, otherwise unhealthy, in an unvariegated sense. By the early 19th century, we were beginning to separate people. We were beginning to define the insane versus the degenerate poor, versus degenerate alcoholics, versus a variety of different other subspecimens of human, humans that needed to be defined and separated in different ways. So there's a relatively quick passage in which new disciplines and new institutions, prisons, mental asylums, begin to create new sorts of objects of knowledge. And so this was the fairly simple point, I would say, that there was simply this institutional foundation in which all sorts of new objects were being created. But the second important point here about postmodernism, and I'm mindful of the time, uh, the second important point about postmodernism, um, especially in the, the work of Foucault, was not simply that institutional structures create the conditions in, of true statements, which is to say become a barrier between the world as it is and true statements, but Discourse not only creates objects, it creates subjects, which is to say humans. That absolutely in institutions there are structures of power which determine and set limits on true statements. But this power is absolutely effective in disciplining individuals. That people become who they are, they get a sense of themselves that is so effective it even sinks down to the level of the body, it shapes individuals as who they are. Jacques Lacan, who was another one of the postmodernists who was 
a, um, uh, a psychoanalyst, argues that even at the level of desire, it is language through which we represent desire, and language is fully built into the structures of society. So even at something that seems as antithetical to institutional reach as sexual desire and sexual arousal, it is disciplined in every bit as much a way as anything else is. So the important thing here about this conception of the relationship between knowledge and power is that on the one hand, we have these institutions that postmodernism would argue are creating objects of knowledge, but they're also creating subjects. Self-understanding, the disciplining of our bodies, how we view the world in the deepest possible way, how we view ourselves in the deepest possible way, are being shaped by discourse. We can only understand ourselves, our desires, our positions, society, ourselves as women, as, as, as men and others through a lens. And gender is a great example of that. Gender, of course, is a totally socially constructed norm. Um, again, like language, my, you know, my son, who's now 22, knows that he cracks a beer, you know, grabs his belt, drives a big-ass truck. Um, that's manhood. Uh, I tried not to teach him in that way, but um, the, um, these are the ways that, uh, and I, I, didn't, I don't even want to inquire into what his sexual preferences are, um, but the, um, you know, these are the way in which power is shaping individuals uh, in important ways. Um, and certainly what this leads to, and I, I'm just mindful of the time, and I don't want to go over time too, too much, um, what this leads to in postmodernism is an awareness of the way in which language and knowledge develop certain practices that shape human beings. I think one of the most powerfully evocative ideas that I've seen within the academy about how this works is the idea of performance. And it was, um, uh, and I've just forgotten the name of the author uh, who came up with this notion of performance. It is, um, performance is the notion that, how is it that we, at a deep level, for instance, learn how to be a woman? To wear a dress is not simply to wear a dress, it is a performance of a social role informed by an unseen discourse that says women shall wear dresses. And in wearing the dress and in performing the domestic chores, that becomes the performance in which womanhood, in fact, deeply reshapes personalities and bodies in correspondence with discursive conditions. Um, and that's why, of course, uh, that we also get coming out of postmodernism and something that clearly vexes Mr. Peterson. We get things like Women's Studies Department, African-American Studies Department. He calls it identity politics. He's got one small point. I will grant him that in case there's any Peterson boosters in the room. Um, that absolutely many people who are uh, involved in, you know, for instance, African-American studies will say, well, there's this white shaping of African identity. If we scrape all that off, you'll have the natural African. Postmodernists will say, forget about that. You're never getting there. It's cultural constructs all the way down. You're just going to get another system of power. So there's no outside knowledge, no outside power. Um, and it's for this reason that the fellow who actually invented the term postmodernism, a fellow named Jean-François Jean Lyotard, who is from France, and who in 1977 was commissioned by the new Parti Québécois government of Quebec to write a study about the universities in Quebec and came up instead with a pithy theoretical treatise known as the postmodern condition. Simplifying to the extreme, I define postmodern as incredulity toward metanarratives. And that's the other important point, that if 
you can never find a place where you can actually understand the world as it is through clear human reason, where humans are always shaped by discourse and power, and the objects that we see out there are defined in discourse. If there is no phenomenological bracketing powerful enough to remove those outside influences, how can you attach a broader civilizational arc to the project of the knowing individual, which was the foundation of modernity? You have to be incredulous toward the notion that we can understand everything through human reason and make ourselves free thereby. That grand meta-narrative of, of Western civilization and modernity is undermined by post-modernity. And again, to conclude, I see Ian with the microphone. To conclude, the, I think um, if postmodernism gets us to this point where there is no outside, where there is no place where we can escape knowledge and power, the effects of power that arise from knowledge, is very, and, and I would say the power that is exercised through knowledge is not repressive, it's productive. It's creating objects, it's creating subjects in quite inverse knowledge sense of what we think power does as a repressive force. If we can never get outside, they come to that point not because they have a fundamental animus towards Western civilization, but rather because it is the necessary logic of a discussion that Western civilization and the project of modernity itself initiated. They just come to what I think is the odds-on favorite solution, is that there is no outside where we can clearly understand the world as it is. Um, I'm going to leave it off then with a quote by Umberto Eco, the, the author of The Name of the Rose. People say, and this is from a, uh, an article, uh, interview that was in the Globe and Mail. CanCon at the last minute. I have to throw this in. The federal government makes me have some Canadian content here. Um, people say, it's impossible that everything happens by chance. There must be a God. It's impossible that my language, which expresses so well my inner experience, my soul, has no direct relationship with the world. People are religious animals. They cannot accept that the world, excuse me, the world is by chance, and they cannot accept that language is by convention. It's too terrible. Um, and so this really is the challenge for Jordan Peterson, that postmodernism which baldly accepts that we live in a world wilderness and that we are moving along by chance and convention, he needs a God. And the God is, all those problems don't exist. But if it's not too profane, profane a thing to say on a Sunday morning, let us all believe as good moderns that God is dead and we live in a wilderness. Thank you very much. Yeah.